Okay, everyone, I thought it'd be fun to start off this episode with a little game of 2020 Bingo. Do you have your cards ready? I am all set. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Bee populations in North America are threatened by an invasive species of giant so-called murder hornets. Got it. I did not. <laughs> Which is good. I want to avoid murder hornets anyway. Sure. Well, I heard they disappeared anyway, but never mind. <laughs> Next one. A mysterious football-sized fossil discovered in Antarctica nearly 10 years ago turns out to be a 65 million year old marine reptile egg. Got it. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> All right, next one. This is my favorite. China prepares to deploy a troop of 100,000 ducks to help combat an outbreak of locusts that could severely damage crops in Pakistan. Got it. I'm close. Oh Guys, my gosh. already. Did you rig this for Andy? <laughs> I did not rig <laughs> All right, <laughs> last one. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch writes the 6-3 decision declaring Title VII protects the LGBTQ community from employment discrimination. Boom, bingo. I think he's cheating. This is... <laughs> Show your work, Andy. I don't really understand the game. So <laughs> at least he understood it. That's a win. Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> So uh, on today's episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, we're discussing the decisions released so far for the Supreme Court's 2019-2020 term and how the nation's highest court can be full of surprises. Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the podcast about the real life of lawyering. I'm Laura Temme. I'm joined by Joe Fabush. Hey, everybody. Andy Leonati. How's it going, everyone? <laughs> and back with us for this episode, Allie Marshall. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Allie's back. Yay. <laughs> we were a little lost without you last time. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> well, it wasn't. It, at least it was a little bit less fun. I will say that. Aw. You like me. I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> So this week, we're focusing on the Supreme Court. We've had some pretty big decisions come out in the last week or so that we're going to spend some time on, um, primarily Bostick versus Clayton County, uh, the 6-3 to three decision where the Supreme Court decided on Title VII protections for the LGBT community. This opinion came as a surprise for many of us, and so I think that's something that we're going to talk quite a bit about. Yeah, I actually wasn't maybe as surprised as other people. Um, you know, I, I know that Justice Gorsuch is known as a as a strict textualist, and people were kind of banking on him on voting with the conservative block for cases like these. But, you know, I think the way that Justice Gorsuch framed the opinion actually makes a lot of sense from a textualist perspective. And I think he actually stuck true to his judicial philosophy. So it was surprising, but it also, you know, it, it didn't come out of left field where it was, you know, something that, that nobody could see coming or he bowed to political pressure or anything like that. I think he actually ended up sticking true to his judicial philosophy. So it was a little surprising, um, but maybe in retrospect, it, it shouldn't have been that surprising. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. What about Roberts joining the majority there? Um, how different is he from... Gorsuch where, you know, sometimes sometimes these rulings happen where where Roberts kind of, it seems like he sticks himself on for or against on certain rulings to, you know, maintain the 
status quo. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like he's turning into the swing vote um, kind of before mm-hmm. our very eyes. Um, yeah, I, I was a little surprised to see the chief justice join the opinion. I don't know if, if others were, but I do think that he's very concerned about how people view the Supreme Court and that they view it as an objective you know, judge of balls and strikes. And I think those overarching motivations are playing a big role in him deciding to join with the liberal bloc on some of these cases. Because he was against the uh, gay marriage decision, right? He was. In fact, I think he might have even issued a, a dissent from the bench. I think he, he was kind of strongly against it, if, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, that was a little bit surprising. But, you know, as we've we, we're kind of seeing him develop, actually. I mean, I, I think he, <laughs> he, he's, he's kind of replacing that position that um, Anthony Kennedy just just vacated. And I think he's kind of filling that that void. I was just going to say this is unrelated to the opinion itself except for that i i know that people often don't take the time to read supreme court opinions but it's actually some amazing writing mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely um i thought the um this opinion uh was de- I, it was definitely one of those where you you just the justices did it, and on both sides quite honestly did it did a did a really good job of, of making their point it was very good reading. That's all. Yeah, there was a lot of, of interesting language. One thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, Gorsuch's, quote, canon of donut holes. That he oh, yeah. Up. This is a direct <laughs> quote. <laughs> where he was, I would like to be on the receiving end of a canon of donut holes. <laughs> that, that sounds, canon, that sounds canon good. Canon with one N, not canon with two N's. <laughs> Um, But it was his way of describing this idea that if Congress doesn't speak directly to a specific case within a general rule, then that must create an exception. And that's kind of what the employers in this case were arguing for. And in disagreeing with that, he described it as a cannon of donut holes. And I just, I I laughed for a really long time at that. Do we think that the justice has a sweet tooth? (laughs) I don't know. I think I've heard that he rides his bike to work every day. That really has nothing to do with donuts, but... Well, it, no, sure it does. It counters the donut eating. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. It does. I mean, when I, I... I think, quite honestly, Scalia's opinions were infamous, and his mm-hmm. writing was amazing, whether you agreed with him or not. And I think the justices are doing a really good job of, of living up to that legacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think they... They know that this is a momentous decision, so I think right. they take the time to make it maybe a little bit more accessible because mm-hmm. they know that it's going to be read widely. So I feel like Justice Gorsuch took the time to really lay out his case quite clearly, and mm-hmm. that's true. He offered a lot of examples that you know you don't maybe always get in some other cases, but I mm-hmm. I do think all the justices took the time to really kind of do their best writing for this one because they knew it was going to be so important. Mm -hmm. Well, and Gorsuch did such an amazing job here of making this case sound so much simpler than anyone had described it before. You know, when you, when you look at his logic, it's like, Oh yeah, of course that's, that's what this means when people have been arguing about it for who knows how long. Should we just quick get into his 
actual argument, um, just to sure. in case people listening haven't read the opinion. Um, his case was that sex as defined in Title VII encompassed sexual orientation and um, transgender status. And he did this by just looking at the plain language of this statute. So he really just kind of said, we're just going to look at the actual text. Um, Justice Gorsuch is, of course, a, a probably the leading proponent of, of textualism. And he said that just whenever you look at somebody's sexual orientation or look at somebody's um, transgender status, uh, you can't look at that without also looking at their gender. And so it was impossible to look at the word sex and look at whether an employee is, you know, their sexual orientation, and you can't distinguish the two. And because of that, Justice Gorsuch said, well, you know, we're not going to look at what people wanted to do in 1964 or what they understood about LGBT uh, issues in 1964. We're just going to look at the text. And just looking at that, the plain meaning of that actual statute is that it encompasses uh, LGBT workers as well. And so, yeah, he really did kind of make it as simple as he possibly could. And, you know, in fact, some some conservative academics have criticized him for being a little too simplistic with it. But but that was his approach. Well, and and as is clear in Justice Alito's dissent, um, that yeah, he he thought it was a little too simple as well. Um, oh, he was mad. He, oh man, uh, <laughs> that dissent is a hundred pages long. It's three times as long as the opinion itself, which is impressive, honestly. I I did I heard a rumor that when they first tried to upload his dissent to the Supreme Court website, it actually crashed the site. Um, I don't. I can't confirm that this is true, but <laughs> but apparently there were, I guess, screenshots of other opinions involved, and all of this stuff caused the the site to stop working for a little while. I really want it to be true. I I hope it's true that you know someone's just so mad and <laughs> and puts together this this argument that is so uh, comprehensive. <laughs> that it crashes the Supreme Court site. I want to see his PowerPoint on the topic. Oh, that, that would be, be fun. Awesome. He'd I have mean, like I think a thousand slides. <laughs> right. <laughs> All of text. Yeah. Well, and based on his, I think, most colorful, um, I guess, uh, language here, I would hope it would be pirate themed. <laughs> I think my favorite part of this was the pirate ship thing. <laughs> where he he claims that Gorsuch's opinion sails under a textualist flag, but is not actually textualist. It was just yeah. the Pirates I, of the Caribbean I starts it. playing it's, in your it's head. Such, I mean, it's great writing, and so I can't really argue with that part. But it's oh man, it was pretty clear that he was mad. Yeah, in fact, I think that was kind of his biggest issue with the majority opinion was that he he kind of felt betrayed by this approach of like mm -hmm. no i mean because no, it know, does like, it felt like he was writing as if he'd been personally affronted by this yeah but he, and he was just like you know um justice gorsuch is is an inheritor of this uh textualist approach by by the late justice scalia and he was like you know justice scalia would hate this opinion um and so he just kind of wanted to uh, i actually make sure agree that, with that well justice scalia's <laughs> term is over uh -oh. So, I like. Whoa, Celia. dude, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh, man. Despite disagreeing with him, I did like him. He was usually pretty consistent. And yeah, he yeah. was a good writer. So yeah, he, he definitely, and he did, I mean, almost single-handedly start this conservative judicial movement. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot to respect about Justice Scalia. Um, and, and yeah, I think you're right. I, he would never have a, signed on to the majority of opinion. <laughs> I mean, I never mm-hmm, met no. Justice Scalia, but I feel pretty confident in, in saying that. No, basically, I do wonder, though, I don't think Scalia would have signed on to it. And I don't I don't disagree with the opinion because I think it was the right thing to do. I, I don't fully buy Gorsuch's argument, I got to say. I don't, I don't fully buy it. I see where the dissent has, um, has made its point. Like, I get that. I don't know that I fully am on board with it. Do you think he was just, he was just trying to manufacture somehow trying to get to yes or well that yeah that's what's weird about it is that gorsuch for so long has been so against yeah you know sort of activist courts that was something that going into this was interesting because you're putting his two biggest philosophies against each other really oh well as a non as a non-lawyer my opinion of the phrase (laughs) activist court is that it's a steaming pile of bullshit that people (laughs) just the people people just use uh, anytime there's a ruling that they disagree with. I think that that's true that people yeah. do tend to do that and not mm-hmm. understand the stuff that goes behind it. I do also think that the court can overstep and I think, mm-hmm. but I do think there's a role for some of that from the court, quite honestly, or we wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah. I wanted to agree with you, Allie there, because, you know, we were just talking about how Justice Alito's opinion was well-written. And, and one of the reasons why it is well-written is is he does have some valid points. Um, you know, and, and we're not talking about uh, the decision that was reached, but kind of the way that the decision was reached. And I think he had some legitimate points about whether Justice Gorsuch's textualist approach was applied correctly under these circumstances. Um, so I, th- I think... Both dissents are worth reading, and there's definitely a question about whether this was the right way to amend Title VII to get sexual orientation and LGBT workers the rights that, that they deserve. Well, he's arguing that you, they don't have to amend it, right? Like, that it just on its, on its own does that. But I don't know that I was fully persuaded by his argument, Gorsuch's at least. Yeah, no, and, and so my point was that Justice Alito took that opinion as like, you know, Congress can do this, but but the court right. can't. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there there's definitely a, a consistent philosophy behind that, um, that that a lot of people buy into. Um, so, and, and yeah, just to, to clarify that, that we're not necessarily, because I think we all agree on the outcome of the case. Um, you know, certainly I do. Um, but yeah, there there's significant questions about whether Justice Gorsuch kind of fit the square peg of textualism into a round hole. Um, he convinced me. I, I, I bought his argument, and I thought Justice Alito did a very good job of dismantling it, but I, I don't think it was as convincing as um, kind of the language suggested. I, I, I thought Justice Gorsuch was, was pretty convincing. But um, there's definitely reasonable people can disagree about whether Justice Gorsuch's approach really kind of fit the case. 
Under it, yeah, under his approach. I mean, arguably, they could have come to the same conclusion using an entirely different approach. Um, and somebody, you know, one of the more left-leaning justices could have written that, you know, based on whatever legislative history or whatever um, approach they they hold dear. Yeah, and the Senate can do more than just uh, vote on Federalist Society-approved judges. <laughs> so, if, but but at, right now it seems like that's all they're capable of doing. So, sorry, Alito. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the majority of Americans were all for giving workplace protections to the LGBT community. I mean, the overwhelming majority. So, yeah, it, it is kind of on Congress to reflect the general feeling of the American people. The world's greatest deliberative body. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are full of it today. Is that trademarked? <laughs> that, no, that's what every single member of the Senate who's ever served in the Senate likes to say about the Senate. I know, they should trademark it and sell t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so the other case that I really wanted to touch on with a little bit of depth is uh, the DACA decision that came out. Um, you know, this one got a lot of headlines too. And kind of the, the big headline was that Supreme Court tells Trump that he can't end DACA. Um, you know, there was a little bit more to the case. Um, but, you know, since we kind of opened with was uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion surprising. I'm wondering, were you all surprised about this? case as well well i mean what they basically what they told him was he did it poorly you right did it the like wrong he was way, yeah. sloppy mm -hmm. <laughs> so not that he can't it's not a full-on slam dunk if you're yeah. in favor of I, I mean i will say i don't think i ever thought that the administrative procedures act would make <laughs> uh would be so much in the public eye um <laughs> But yeah, because that's what it comes down to is it's not necessarily that he can't do it at all. It's that he can't do it the way that he did. Yeah. Philosophically, it seemed very similar to the opinion on Obamacare, which was like, oh, I got to figure out a way to keep this going because unwinding this program right now instantaneously will be very bad for a lot of people. And he like, and you know, and in the Obamacare opinion, he found the tax argument, which I mean, I was happy with. Yeah. And so it, it you know, it, I, I think you're, you're right, Andy, because there was some debate here over how they should even approach this. You know, I mean, DACA is a pretty unique program it's not really an executive order it's certainly not a law um and so there's a question of whether the administrative procedure act even applies right i mean that was that was one of the dissents here mm -hmm. um and but yeah the, yeah basically uh I, I think justice roberts took this to say you know we are going to apply it we're going to treat it like a regulation from an executive uh agency uh, from a federal agency, and we're going to apply this arbitrary and capricious standard to it. And in that way, we can kind of send it back and, and punt, basically, and we'll see what happens and if it comes back to us or if, you know, who knows, maybe, it, maybe it'll change after the election. Um, you know, I think they kind of were just like, no, we're not going to do it now. And we have this way of, of getting so that we don't have to end it right at this minute. 
once again, the world's greatest deliberative body can step in <laughs> any time it feels like to actually try and find a solution on this. But I guess we'd rather just vote on vote on judges who of questionable quality. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the Congress is threatening to tackle this again, which they've been doing just every couple of months for the last 12 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um more than a decade now. But yeah, this is this is another one that I think there were definitely a few people surprised that Justice Roberts took this and and approached it in this way. And this had another strong dissent too. I think it was Justice Thomas who wrote the dissent here. Um and there's definitely been been some some strong language in these dissents. I you know, with the Supreme Court not being able to say their dissents from the bench. You know, a lot of times when, when these big cases come out, uh, the dissenting justices will prepare some rationale for why they're dissenting. And it's just kind of this exclamation point on their, their dissent. And I think, you know, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito are missing this platform where they can kind of say, no, this, I really, really disagree with this. And uh, I, I think they would have done that for this one as well. Um, but yeah, for now, they, they managed to get a plurality to, to send it back. And so, you know, who knows what will happen. But maybe maybe at the end of November, it, it'll be kind of a moot point anyway. I believe the term is mute point, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. I mean, it is moot point, isn't it? Yes. yes. <laughs> and he's just... <laughs> he's just... Yeah, People okay. obviously make that mistake all the time. Joel's like, I've been saying it wrong all my life. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I yeah. That that makes me feel good that I had Joe. I had Joe questioning himself. That it was all worth it then. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, I want to touch here on uh, qualified immunity, guys, just because we talked about this last episode and surprising absolutely no one. The Supreme Court continued its trend of just letting cops do whatever the hell they want in this country, and they refused to take up qualified immunity. Way to oversimplify it. Yep. <laughs> oh, Allie, Allie, you weren't here for the episode. Yeah, you, were, you weren't explained here. Explained to Andy. I wasn't. How not simple it is. Although, I mean, you, you are right, though. They did, they did punt on it once again. Yeah, I mean, this is just one in a long line of, like, 20 years of, like, do you have a warrant? No? All right. I guess that's fine in this case. Uh, Did you read the guy, his Miranda rights? No? All right. That seems like it was fine in this case, too. (laughs) The the Supreme Court in, like, my lifetime has not really done much to ever reign in police. Um, So this one was not shocking to me. Well, Andy, you'll have plenty of time to get mad again next term because (laughs) these cases come up. All the time, yep. and um, yeah, so keep a lookout, and yeah, it'll 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 come up again, and and yeah, you'll you'll probably get mad again. <laughs> I look forward to it, Joe. All right, <laughs> yep. or maybe by then the world's greatest deliberative body will have come up with something. <laughs> well, I wouldn't count on that either. <laughs> <laughs> I I know I won't either. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah that the new one is pretty much dead on arrival in the senate probably but so uh before we get into next term though um you know there's still a couple of cases that are coming up this term that are still pretty important so uh you know we don't know 
if uh, another case is going to come out between when we're recording and when this airs, but um, I would just be interested in the case that kind of we're all most interested in seeing decided. Um, if anybody has a big one that they're looking forward to. Um, I guess I, I have a few. There's, well, there's the, there's Trump's financial records. Um, the Louisiana abortion statute. Um, and then there's a couple like religious discrimination, religious exemption cases that will be interesting. Yeah. Those are kind of the big three. I just want to see the taxes. That's all I like. <laughs> just Don't forget Bridgegate though. There's a Bridgegate opinion coming out too. Oh, well this court also loves upholding political corruption. So, <laughs> so I think, I also cannot wait to be extremely disappointed by the Bridgegate ruling. <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk all about it when it comes out. I don't like to pick favorites, so. <laughs> <laughs> Do you tell that to your kids, too? <laughs> oh, no. No, I have them compete against each other. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'll tell one that they're my favorite that week, and then the other one has to earn back their spot. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm not getting a lot of laughter. You guys think I'm serious. <laughs> In a way. <laughs> I was laughing the whole time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just smiling and then I forget that the microphone doesn't pick up smiling. Right. Yep. <laughs> not a not a visual medium. Well, yeah, we'll be anxiously awaiting to see um, how those decisions come out and we will definitely address them in at least a segment on a future episode of the podcast. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Andy will regale us with another edition of Thumbs Down. And this time he's reviewing the new HBO show, Perry Mason. Not having enough time to thoroughly review case notes in a brief before filing isn't an option. Legal professionals like you make the time, even if that means pulling long hours and late nights. Well, Westlaw Edge just released a new feature on QuickCheck that will give you that time back. QuickCheck Quotation Analysis is an at-a-glance report that shows differences between case quotes in an uploaded document and the actual case language on Westlaw Edge. Use Quotation Analysis to find weaknesses or inaccuracies in your opponent's documents that you could use to your advantage, and to ensure your quotes are error-free, because accuracy is everything. To learn more, visit tr.com quickcheck. And now we're moving on to one of my favorite segments, and it's not just because I don't have to do much. Um, Andy presents Thumbs Down, where Andy <laughs> watches law-related TV shows and movies and lets us know his thoughts. Oh, thank you, Laura. You're so welcome. Uh, we, we, were, we were long past due for another edition <laughs> of Thumbs Down, guys, where I, where I watch the latest uh, legal ephemera so you don't have to. And... <laughs> I was really worried this week. Uh, I thought I was really going to like or even love the premiere of HBO's Perry Mason. You know, HBO, star-studded cast, prestige TV. But, thumbs down. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I thought for sure it was going to be good. Yeah. Well, all right. Tell us um, why. So, this version is trying to be a little bit more like the original Perry Mason Pulp Fiction novels written by Earl Stanley Gardner and not the famous TV show that all of our parents know and love. <laughs> um, 
Our show is set in 1932 L.A., La La Land, City of Angels, Hollywood. <laughs> You're having a lot of fun right now, aren't you? Stop. <laughs> a baby, kidnapped and ransomed, and then murdered. Uh, HBO takes it upon themselves to show us a murdered baby. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so right there, um, I'm like, sweet. Sweet. I, I go I go all these years st- studiously avoiding Game of Thrones because, like, <laughs> I don't like most, like, ultraviolence. Mm-hmm. And just within, like, a minute, I'm like, okay, cool, sweet. So, anyway, cut to our intrepid, intrepid title character. He is not yet some master litigator like Raymond Burr portrayed him as in the TV series. He is a depressed drunk. Of course. His kid, who he never sees, lives with his ex-wife. He's trying desperately hard to hold on to his family farm, but he's struggling financially. And he is still a lawyer, but apparently a good one. We're not really sure. (laughs) Um, But a high-powered lawyer whose name is not important, but is portrayed by John Lithgow, comes to Perry and wants him to work with him on the case of the murdered baby. Uh, Perry makes a rather quaint crack. I thought you guys would all appreciate this about uh, really bilking the clients with his $20 an hour billable rate. Nice. <laughs> Rolling in money. <laughs> yeah. well, although although 1930s, that, yeah. that probably is actually uh, bilking the client. Yeah. But he needs Perry with him because he's, quote, good at his job. As a private investigator, as a lawyer, again, we don't know. So a rich a rich oil baron portrayed by uh, T-1000 from Terminator 2 uh, knows, <laughs> knows the parents of the baby. And this being the old days, he's going to hire these lawyers to investigate the crime themselves while the super corrupt LAPD does the same. Um, turns out the oil baron and the parents all go to this church, which in passing seems to be a super crazy place, but I guess we'll find out more later. Uh, I won't, but if you want to keep watching, you will find out more later. And then what follows throughout this premiere is a series of ethical lapses by our quote unquote hero played as loathsomely and depressingly as possible by Matthew Rees also known as the absolute baller Philip Jennings from The Americans. I love that. Um, I miss that show. Oh, I'm going to watch it just too. to see him. <laughs> I do too. I miss the... I, I, I only watched it like at the start of quarantine and I and we just like blew through it and now I miss it again. Yep. So in the course of going about his day, we see Perry break and enter into a celebrity's house to take pictures of him in some rather compromising positions with one of Hollywood's up-and-coming starlets in order to blackmail a studio for money. Um, And I'm pretty sure this subplot was in there just for the obligatory HBO nudity. Oh, probably. (laughs) Yeah. Because not to, I mean, we're we're breaking a lot of uh, lawyer ethical rules there, but maybe he is a private investigator. I don't really understand what's happening. Yeah, he is both (laughs) a, he is both a private investigator and a lawyer. So... I don't know what to tell you. Um, we also see Perry and John Lithgow and John Lithgow's uh, like office manager all drinking heavily while they're doing their work in the law office. Like they're literally drinking off flasks a lot. 
Um, well, is this during Prohibition? It must be. 1932? Yeah. I well, think uh, so. Yeah, especially back then, probably pretty standard. They're just flasking left and right. Um, we then see Perry break and enter into a crime scene. Uh, we see him drunkenly call and berate his ex-wife for not letting him talk to his kid, which you would think a lawyer would know not to do mm-hmm. in a matter of child custody. And we see him bribe the coroner for physical evidence from the body of the murder victim. And just for good measure, Perry has this to say about the mother of the victim who he thinks was involved in the murder. Quote, she doesn't twitch an eyelid while someone creeps into her house and nabs her kid. Do we think she's a drinker? What? (laughs) No, no, Perry, that's you. (laughs) You are the drinker. And the coup de grace in a bit of thumbs down serendipity that I didn't think I was going to get. We have a scene in court. Perry is on the stand answering questions in his capacity as a private investigator for the defense in some case. We don't know what case this is. However, far less amusing is the dishonorable end to your military career. That has nothing to do with this trial. A blue discharge for conduct unbecoming. Would you care to elaborate on that, Mr. Mason? Was that a mistake? Feel free to jump in, Frank. Uh, Objection. Question (laughs) relevant. You're goddamn right. Sustained. Watch the God talk, sir. Sorry. Nothing further. So, so he's a witness telling his lawyer to jump in and object. That's yeah. Oh and <laughs> while the judge him watch the God talk. Yeah, the judge with his watch the God talk, and then in the scene right after that, we see Perry walking through the hallway with a friend who's saying, "You are four words away from being held in contempt," and I was just. That part made me so happy because every show that I've watched so far, we have had a threatened holding in contempt mm-hmm. of the title character. <laughs> <laughs> but they never do it. They always only yeah. threaten it. Well, we did. No, we did get it in Bluff City Law. He did end up oh, behind. Right. Jimmy Smith's did end up in jail in Bluff City Law. But this That's was just. That's right. I forgot. This, uh, for life, we had a close call. And this one was another close call. I just, I didn't think we were going to get anywhere close to a threatened contempt in this. And, but these, these legal show writers just, they do not disappoint. I, I do not make up these bogus contempt threats. They just, they have a way of finding me. Um, oh, by the way, uh, earlier, uh, it was prohibition because prohibition ended in 1933. Thank you, Ali. Just reminded myself of the internet. <laughs> Thank you found Ali. the internet. <laughs> I found the internet. <laughs> uh, and then, worst of all, no old-timey talk. No one, this was 1932, no one called each other champ or sport. <laughs> no dipsy-doos, no dunkaroos, <laughs> no bee's knees. They're not going to do that on HBO. <laughs> no Charlestons. No one took, no one took the, no one took the big sleep. What, are they supposed to just break out into the Charleston in the middle of the court? <laughs> so it sounds show, like this you're show complaining features, that this show lacked a dialect coach. This show, this show features a New Year's Eve party in Hollywood. Uh, okay. Like, come on, help me out here a little bit. Now, Andy, you, you have to demonstrate what you're talking about for our audience. You have to give us yeah. a line or two. Like, what, what's, what's what you would say at a 30s Hollywood party? Uh... 
Champ, Champ, I heard you were doing the uh, Dipsy Doo with one of the uh, Flapper girls <laughs> late at night last night. <laughs> you see here? You see here? Yeah, I, I yeah. do miss the old timey radio announcer voice, you know, where everything is. Well, see here. <laughs> yeah, none of that. Everyone just talked in a very 2020 cadence. Hmm. And since it was HBO, it was still F bombs every fourth word. And so HBO, this being a serial, I can't give up much else of the plot without spoiling anything. Um, But this just underwhelmed. This was not the premiere of Better Call Saul where you're like, okay, this is a slow burn, but it leaves me kind of begging for more. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was kind of boring. Like the whole time I was just watching, I wasn't... There wasn't any glee like I had when watching Bluff City Law where I was like, this is so bad. I love it. (laughs) This was more I was just kind of like. Were there any divorcees bringing casseroles? No, no, no. (laughs) Maybe that's what it was missing. I say, I say, old sport. I have divorcees bringing me casseroles left and right. (laughs) None of that. So, Andy, on a scale of uh, True Detective season one, two, and three, have you seen True Detective? Oh, yeah. Oh, I've watched it so all. Good. All right. So, so would you give it oh, a season oh, one, season two, or season three? Oh, this would... I, to be fair, this is only the premiere, so it could get better. But that's what I also said about the season two premiere of True Detective. I kept coming back every week being like, okay, okay, this train wreck is going to make sense at some point. And guess what? It never did. Um, And so I I feel, I think as this season of this show moves on, we are going to see Perry Mason trying to solve the murder of this poor little baby. And it's going to involve a whack job church um that's borderline cultish i guess um (laughs) it's gonna involve some corrupt cops they were all corrupt in the 30s i think apparently well especially in la yeah yeah this la confidential (laughs) and like yeah like there was there was no actual police work if tv has taught me anything then yeah that is true yeah i'm gonna learn my lesson from true detective season two and i'm not gonna stick around to find out so (laughs) To reiterate, big fat thumbs <laughs> down. Ah, uh, <laughs> I'm disappointed. And this yeah. one hurt. Yeah, this one hurt. Yeah, I had high hopes for this one, but thank you, Andy, for watching it so that we don't have to. <laughs> what um, what role does Tatiana Maslany have in this? Who? <laughs> <laughs> she's not in the premiere. Oh, okay. she's not in the premiere. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm very curious to see. She's, yeah, she's an orphan black, and she plays like mm-hmm. what, like twenty different characters, and she's amazing, uh, yeah, so. a whole bunch. I also want to see what she is up to, but okay, I'll accept your verdict. Yeah, <laughs> see what I did there. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I liked it very much. <laughs> uh, it's awesome. It's better when you explain the joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where the comedy comes in. Yeah. Well, once again, thank you, Andy, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. 
Please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating and a review, and check the show notes for related content, as well as lp.finelaw.com. And we'll see you next time, old sport. And wants him to work with him on the case of the murdered baby. They murder a baby in the first episode? Did I miss Where that? Where were you? <laughs> you missed the, Oh, my God. Do we have to start internet. this whole thing I over? I couldn't get into the internet. Are we going to have to start yeah. this whole <laughs>